<laughs> All right, we are in Acts 18. We are recording. Um, let's see here. We, in Acts 17, we had Paul having his famous uh, speech on the Areopagus. Uh, we also encountered uh, one of the converts from that, Dionysius the Areopagite, whose feast day was actually just a few days ago, uh, which is also happens to be uh, my wedding anniversary on October 3rd, so it's kind of hard to Aww. forget. Uh, Congratulations. That, thank you. 11 years. Wow. The intercessions of Dionysius. <laughs> Divine love. <laughs> um, I, I think we could probably spend two or three sessions on Acts 17, but maybe another time. <laughs> I think we should move forward because we've been, we have a lot of these that we've recorded and done and talked about. So um, I'd like to keep us kind of at 30,000 feet and do little dives here and there. But um, I also don't have the time to do a huge, like massive prep work uh, in the background to make these into, you know, because you could spend a lot of time on every one of these uh, encounters with Old Testament precedents or the Greco-Roman world, or there's just Paul and his theology, like what's going on. Um, But we're just trying to hit the high points here. So, in honor of hitting high points, let's uh, start with prayer, and then we'll start with Acts 18. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, O Christ our God, open our hearts and minds to your holy word. Um, Open our eyes to see and to understand uh, your will for your church, that we, in seeing the example set by your holy apostles and their teaching, Uh, and in their prayer, and in their life, that we too may be encouraged, uh, that we too may imitate uh, their apostolic work, and become apostolic workers in your vineyard here in East Tennessee, and throughout the world. It's in your name, and your Father, and your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Amen. I almost reverted back to Protestant days there at the end of that prayer. <laughs> but, I, but I went Trinitarian. I, I'm always, a, you know, this is a sidetrack, but uh, my daughter was in for a little bit, this kind of like Girl Scout troop type thing. And being in East Tennessee, that means we're, although it met at a Roman Catholic church, actually, it was very... American Heritage uh, Girls? Yeah. Uh, she's now on Girl Scouts. Not has nothing to do with because it, it, mostly because it was in Farragut. And come on, like it took the the commute was as much as you know. So they would they always pray, and I had been so long since I had been present to a like low church Protestant prayer, <laughs> and I was I was floored because it took me back and the the criticisms of you know that we do rote prayers that we always do the same prayers and i was just like this prayer is the same prayer i heard for like 20 years (laughs) in my childhood like nothing changes um 
and everything is always done in the name of Jesus, which is right. But they're like, still, I'm always, you know, I always try to be very careful in engaging with other tradition to not overplay. You know, it's very easy to say orthodoxy has kept Trinitarian focus and even Catholics somewhat have some odd, like it's there, but it seems very, I mean, this sounds weird to say Jesus centric and not, you know, not always father and spirit going on. Um, But I always felt like I didn't really understand the Trinity at all growing up. Well, part of that is just being a child, but (laughs) it doesn't help when your prayer patterns have nothing to do with the father, son, and Holy spirit, or you don't really like, um, I don't know. I was just floored. So I talked with my daughter after all of that. And it was, it was a very interesting experience because she goes to a Roman Catholic uh, elementary school. So she's being exposed to Catholicism, obviously Orthodoxy, and then a little bit of Protestantism here and there. And she's just always, she's just very confused by not the way Catholics pray, but the way Protestants pray. She just doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. Which that's just so different than what I grew up <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, going back to uh, guess what? You made it. David Waite is actually joining us. Well, we should we should get going into Acts eighteen without me being nostal- waxing nostalgic about my Protestant prayers growing up. <laughs> um, so, who would like to read Acts eighteen? I can start. Would you read the first 11 verses? Sure. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they worked, for by trade they were tent makers. And he argued in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied occupied with preaching, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Eustus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man shall attack you to harm you, for I have many people in the city. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul continues his journey. He made some converts in Athens. He's now in Corinth. And here he finds Aquila, uh, a Pontian, and his wife Priscilla, who will become important in the early church. Um, but they're in Corinth because Jews had been commanded to leave Rome uh, by Claudius. This is also helps uh, in dating things, the book of Acts. 
And um, basically, Paul works and spends his weekends uh, with his usual recreation, which is arguing with people. Uh, he goes to the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuades Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia because Paul had to get out of Dodge, um, he uh, is still doing his weekend uh, festivities of arguing with the Jews and Greeks in the synagogue. And things are getting uh, heated up. And I like this phrase, shook out his garments. It's kind of like kicking the dust off of his shoes like we encounter in the Gospels. He says, your blood be upon your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Seems like Paul is constantly kind of having this realization or revelation that um, he needs to focus on the Gentiles. But this is, of course, the drift that we've had since uh, the vision to Peter and then the the council in Acts 15 and in Jerusalem. And now Paul's now on his second missionary journey. Are there any aspects of the story so far that anyone has any questions about or comments? Well, I was very interested. I was listening to Jeannie Constantinou uh, talk about this at some point, and she talked about the Jews being expelled from Rome. And there's evidently some sort of document that says rather cryptically, the Jews, the, the emperor ordered the Jews out because of Christus. Uh, and her why, take on so it, why why because of Christus? Well, it wasn't Christus; it was Crestus. <laughs> but her take on it was that 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 evidently the Jews were in an uproar in Rome, arguing one way and another about the Christ, and the Romans right. really didn't get it. <laughs> right, didn't even get the <laughs> right, and. You know, finally, Claudius just got sick of all this arguing among the Jews and ordered them all out. <laughs> That's one way to stop arguing. It's basically <laughs> saying you can argue somewhere else, not here. Or if we could do something about the current, you know, election preparations that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So we have then Priscilla and uh, Aquila coming. So. Obviously, even though it says that Quill is a Jew, um, he's a Christian. So I think that also helps uh, build the case that uh, Dr. Jeannie was building about the arguing in Rome about Christus, a.k.a. Christ. <laughs> David, do you have any uh, insights from Macedonia or Pontus or anything? I just think it's uh, Paul just keeps reaching out to the Jews first and the Gentiles second. Mm-hmm. And Paul, I think it, that's Paul, still in his is, thinking. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Paul is well convinced that this is the summation of everything the Jews have gone through, that this is the second coming, that this is the Messiah, that this is everything, everything that the pro, that, that Jesus is everything the prophets have predicted. 
uh, th- th- I mean, that's what I'm getting out of it. That 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 Jesus is the, the you know, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of, of of all the prophecies, you know, and that it's the end times. And so he goes to the Jews first. He continues to go to the Jews first, which makes sense because only the Jews would understand. Really, the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't have the background right. to understand the way the way the Jews do. Right. That's 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 those are just my thoughts. Yeah. Well, and I think that is reflected, especially as we were commenting on not last week but two weeks ago about Acts 17, about how Paul approaches things, how different the sermon is from a lot of the earlier sermons. Uh, he has to make a much broader, um, I'd almost say kind of monotheistic argument. I know that word is complicated in his baggage, but let's just leave that to the side, okay? Um, but he, at the end, it's, it, you know, the particularity of the message of that Jesus and Israel are, you know, you have a man resurrecting from the dead. You have like the particularity of the story that Paul has. He can only stay in that kind of place of broad strokes for so long. Uh, it doesn't, you, you have to get particular about Israel because if you miss Israel, you're going to miss Jesus because you're going to end up, your, your theology is going to get messed up. Yeah. Um, unfortunately that happens a lot. Um, that's one of the main mm, reasons why you get the Nazi Jesus. And what I mean by Nazi Jesus is why uh, a large swath of the German uh, Protestant and Catholic church were uh, swept up with Nazism stuff because they weren't firmly rooted enough in old Testament. And they'd had centuries is even built into, you can see this even in the way that a philosopher like Hegel even thinks Um some of it, I know some folks will point to Luther, but I think there's a certain dynamic or way that they would approach the Old Testament um, that really laid the groundwork for them to, um, and we still have it with us today, I think, in North America, right? Like the Old Testament is passe. If you read it, it's all about Jesus in really simplified ways. I would still contend like we understand it, Jesus to be the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Um, but it's all, I mean, you see this with the German Enlightenment. Uh, Christianity is a better religion because it's moral and not ritualistic. Yes. Christianity is better because it's spiritual and not physical or carnal. Christianity is better because it's universal and not particular. Uh, I mean, we can go down the list and you can see how this can weds really well with, uh, I'll just, I like to pick on Kant. So it (laughs) welds with, and this is also Kant's critique uh, or way of thinking, not one of his critiques, but uh, you can see how this lays the groundwork and, Lo and behold, when you get to somebody like uh, Von Harnack or mainline uh, Protestant denominations, and they're talking about the content of Jesus's preaching is uh, there, there's a God in the heavens and then the, the brotherhood of all humans, and that is the basic content. Well, 
that's pretty far away from the apocalyptic uh, prophet Jesus, <laughs> the fulfillment, the Messiah. Uh, and Paul, Paul doesn't make much sense either because he, you'd have to get rid of a lot of what Paul says. Um, he's, as, as David was saying, he's staked everything on this claim that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And I'm so, trying to remember, there's a Christian group, I, I guess you would call them evangelical. I don't know if you would or not. There's a Christian group in Washington, D.C. They're very, very, they've been very, very influential in, 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 in politics. And a lot of liberals have suspected that there's some kind of Christian right-wing conspiracy to take over the government. But that's not really true. It's just a Christian brotherhood. But this Christian brotherhood, they've got a, uh, they, uh, they've got a lot of people involved, including a, a, a congressman from Tennessee whose name I can't remember. Maybe it's best. But in any <laughs> event, in, in any event, one of their things is the New Testament is the only thing you need. The New Testament is the only thing you need. The only part of the Bible you need is the New Testament. You don't need anything else. So, so I mean, it's a very, it's not an unusual thread. No, it's really not. There's something also, else there's I want a to mega mention. church pastor in Atlanta who, who's doing the same thing. Something else I want to mention is I notice Paul, he says, you know, uh, you know, he's he's shaking out his garments instead of his sandals for some reason, and said to them, you, "Your blood be upon your heads, I am innocent." For now, I will go to the Gentiles, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus. So we assume that Titus is a Gentile, but it goes on to say, uh, or no, 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 it's Titus Justice. I'm sorry. He went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So he's not going to the man on the street who's never had anything to do with Judaism before. He's going to one of these God-fearing Gentiles who goes to synagogue and knows about, about about the history of the people of Israel. And I think back throughout Acts, it seems that quite frequently when they talk about Paul or whoever talking to a Gentile, it's one of these God-fearing Gentiles who has spent a lot of time in the synagogue. Do you follow? Am I completely yeah. off track? It seems to me yeah. that, that that's what consistently happens. Yep. You know, and I'm afraid I've always was, you know, he went to the Gentiles and he just went to, you know, uh some guy who's worshiping Apollo. But no, no, actually he's going to God fearing Gentiles who know the story, if you will, okay. And and, and, and talking to them. So that that's I don't know. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's just intriguing to me. That just came to me. So you have Paul with, uh, now we have one of the rulers of the synagogue. He has won him over, baptized Crispus, baptizes his household. And we have another vision, Pauline vision. This is now, don't be afraid. Uh, you need to speak out. 
no man is going to harm you. And this seems to be where Paul gets the, uh, a great break where he gets a year and a half in Corinth teaching the word of God among them. That's fascinating just because of all the problems that we encounter in first Corinthians and second Corinthians, or in some people's estimation, third Corinthians, since we maybe don't have second and fourth Corinthians, or there's some debate out there. Um, but there's a reason why Paul is able to write to the Corinthians and be very intimately familiar with their problems and the people um, and things that are going on. If you remember correctly, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, it's Aquila that gets referenced because of the work that he had been doing in Corinth. When he does the um, back and forth of who, ha who has been baptized, have you been baptized into? Let's see here. I thank God that I baptized, this is 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So, or they earlier say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. So this uh, family of Crispus obviously is an influential, stays an influential family within the Corinthian church. Should we keep reading? Mm -hmm. Erica, do you want to continue to, down at verse 17? Sure. But when Gallio was proconsul of uh, Achaia. Achaia, the Jews made a united attack upon Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoings or vicious crime, I should have reason to bear with you, O Jews. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they seized all Sosthenes, Sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. Ooh. Man, it's like our public discourse is getting to this point. Um, we have, again, a desire to bring in the local authorities. Again, we have a similar situation, the Gospels, where um, a local um, Roman official is basically saying, you know what? This is about, and I think this is fascinating, a matter of questions about words and names. <laughs> Y'all are arguing about some books and stuff. So let me, I don't want anything to do with this. Um, again, I'm going to guess names. We are talking about the names of Jesus, probably what it means for the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, what, what is the importance of that? Uh, and so now things have finally gotten out of hands and out of hand, and they beat a man in front of the tribunal by tribunal. Should we keep reading, or is there have anyone have any comments about this? I, I don't quite understand beating that man in front of the tribunal. I, 
Yeah, that's a good question. Who is the they that seizes him? You've kind of scrolled forward a lot. I'm trying to remember. Galileo was mentioned in the previous paragraph, right? No. No, I thought he was. Oh no. Okay, I thought he was. Okay. Crispus is mentioned before. Galileo is mentioned just now. Okay. I don't know if it's basically they needed a scapegoat and so they chose to beat up their leader because he didn't get them what they wanted. I it I don't think it's the Christians who sees Sosothenes and beat him. Could you scroll back just a little, Father? Just Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Yeah. So who's Sosothenes? Well, my well, he was there a year and a half. Crispus is a Christian. He can't be the ruler of the synagogue anymore. So Sosothenes has got to be the new ruler. Okay. 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 That would be my guess as to what's going on. Sorry to be so pedantic. No, not pedantic. I like that word though. I use it a lot because yeah. I'm pedantic. <laughs> You're a pedant. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was once accused of being a pedant. And, a pedant? And I, yeah, yeah. It was during my law practice, and I said, "What does that mean?" And they explained to me what it meant, and I said, "Oh, well, thank you." That's <laughs> what makes me effective. <laughs> so let's go. Let's keep moving. David, would you like to read the next? Can you read eighteen through twenty-three? I give it a shot. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila, yes? Aquila. Aquila, well. That's how I say it. That's how I grew up saying it. You can say it however you want. At Sinchari? Huh? He cut his hair for for he had a vow. Oh. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and argued with the Jews again. I'm sorry, the again's not in the text. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And they went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Priscilla and Aquila go with Paul to Syria, and he cuts his hair for he made a vow. Remember Reed mentioning this earlier. Reed, what do you what do you make of this? Well, it reminds me of the Nazarite vow from the Mosaic Law, mm-hmm. um, and 
I'm trying to remember if when Paul finally makes it back to Jerusalem, there isn't something about his hair again there. Um, but, you know, the idea of the Nazarite vow was you dedicated your hair. Uh, I mean, that's not all there was to it, but you, you dedicated yourself to God in a particular way for a certain length of time. Or yep. for a few folks, it was their whole lives. And part of it was that your hair was not to be cut during that time. And then... Yep. There's, there's then you don't drink wine. Right. That's right. You don't drink wine. And at the end of the time, all of the hair was cut off. And I think, you know, it was sort of like a tonsuring. It was given as an offering to God at the, you know, at the end of the vow. And then you resume sort of normal life. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, um, I'm trying to recall who else made a Nazarite vow from the Old Testament. I remember it, but I can't remember the context. Well, Samson was a Nazarite from birth yes. for his whole life. That's what I thought. I guess that's the only one. So, let's see here. But it makes it seem as though I mean, I don't know that this says conclusively that this is a Nazarite vow, but it sounds as though Paul is doing very Jewish things, that he's still very much practicing Judaism um, and presumably sees no conflict between that and everything he's been teaching the Gentiles. Yes, yes. Yeah. I would suggest that's the point. Looks like Acts 21 is the other spot where it's mentioned verses 22 and 24. Yeah, where it talks about men who have taken vows in Jerusalem to shave their heads. So again, this kind of underlines, if it is a Nazarite vow, I think there is some debate as to whether or not this is exactly what it is since it doesn't say it explicitly. So of course people will line up in different ways, probably because of what they think about Paul and how he relates to Judaism. Um, I think so far what we've seen from Paul, especially since he had no problem with uh, um, circumcising Timothy, uh, that since he's a Jew, he can do Jewish religious acts Again, I, I even stumble a little bit saying Jewish religious acts because what we like everything at this time is up in the air. We don't have like everything we say Jew now, Jewish now uh, is all post destruction of temple and modern rabbinical Judaism, which is so different than the Judaism that would have uh, been at that time. So, um, but I would agree. Uh, uh, following on what uh, on what uh, Reed said, or what I I just said, I really think the important point here is that I think think worrying about whether it's an Israelite vow would be a red herring. That the just the fact thing, that, he... that the important thing is it 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 it, re it it reinforces the idea that he's an active practicing. He's a he's a Jew. Right. He's an active practicing Jew and doing 
So why? So do you think Luke puts this in here as a way of strengthening the Pauline case that while he will require, he will not require circumcision from Gentiles. He's still amenable and practicing. He's not just a complete like apostate from what they've known before, which would be, which would play into his enemy's hands. I would say yes. Yeah, I think so too. And that seem, that does seem to come up again in chapter 21, like you mentioned in verse 24, where he says, you know, pay for these men to be, have their heads ha shaved and you be purified with them so that everyone will know that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Yep. So I think that's why it's mentioned here. Mm -hmm. And of course, once Paul starts to defend himself, once he's arrested in Jerusalem, you know, what he says again and again is, I'm, you know, I'm simply preaching what we Jews have always believed. Mm -hmm. He never mm -hmm. seems to present Christianity as something different from or separate from Christianity. Yep. Anything else about his traveling there? Sailing from Ephesus or landing in Caesarea? Goes back to Antioch, so that's the end of his second missionary journey. Wanders around Galatia and Phrygia. Should we move to the last portion of this chapter? Mm -hmm. Sure. David, do you go, go ahead and finish it out? Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native, Alex, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Achilla, Achilla, <laughs> is that right? Go for it. Just go, just go with it. All right. Heard him. Confidence will win. Just whatever. <laughs> Heard him, they took him and expounded to him the way of the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to receive him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully conf confuted the Jews in public. Showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul's not a one-off. We got somebody named Apollos who's coming from a different part of the Mediterranean, from Alexandria. He comes to Ephesus. And this is just a fascinating, as we've been talking about how things haven't settled out. Um, this is a very fervent, well-versed man in the scriptures. He knew about Jesus. He knew the way of the Lord, he, yet he only knew the baptism of John. So I, I find that to be fascinating. Um, one, it shows how we do, I think at this time to think that everything is kind of being packaged and sent out, like here's the catechism for what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, things are still chaotic um 
there's still things that need to be smoothed out as we've already seen with Acts 15 and there needs to be a conciliar way of doing that. Um, I also think it shows uh, Apollos's humility. Um, he's going around arguing with people about how the interpretation that he understands of scripture that's been shared with him, you know, about Jesus is correct. And then he's basically to took to the side and taught the fullness more accurately and he accepts it. That's, that is something. Yeah. I don't know. I grew up uh, going to a lot of Bible debates in some ways. I feel like I grew up in the 19th century. Uh, we had public debates, like week long debates. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I don't think I saw a single person ever change sides. <laughs> uh, so this is something for somebody uh, fervent in spirit and deeply convicted to uh, listen and to um, be open to being shown the more accurate way of things. I do think it's interesting that it doesn't talk about what exactly that is. Though I think it is referencing, it, I mean, it, the, the, that side comment about he only knew the baptism of John I'm sure that is part of what needed to be updated, but it doesn't say that he was baptized or anything. I, I just think that's in, it's interesting what is put in and then what is omitted. Who instructed him in verse 25? He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Uh, yeah. So he had some sort of instruction. Uh, well, remember, maybe. Remember, go ahead. Like he could have been baptized there when he was instructed by someone else, possibly like. But he only knew the baptism of John. I'm sure like, I'm sure what happened is he got a wave of Johannines <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, then he hears about Jesus Christ. He's convinced, but somehow in that, um, I mean, remember Pentecost Pentecost, you've got people from all over the place. So it could very well that there was a group of people who were baptized at Pentecost and they're like, we really got to get back to Alexandria. They didn't sit around for a few weeks and learn much of anything. Um, and so he just didn't get the full picture. So when now he's, he knows that he believes Jesus Christ is fulfillment of scripture and he's fervent, but he also has enough humility to know when, he needs to change. It's a good lesson for all of us. Well, and I wonder too whether the start of chapter 19 has some bearing on this when Paul um, comes back through Ephesus and finds some disciples who don't know about the Holy Spirit and they only know the baptism of John, but it refers to them as disciples. So let's go ahead and move to Acts 19 then. Read, would you read the first 10 verses of Acts 19? Sure. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, 
that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve of them in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, arguing and pleading about the kingdom of God. But when some were stubborn and disbelieved, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples with him, and argued daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So what do you make of these disciples? I think it's unfair that Reed got stuff that was easier to pronounce than me. <laughs> That's fair. This is really this is really intriguing. Yeah. They never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Wow. I find Paul's question fascinating. Into what then were you baptized? They know about Jesus. But so there's a few things I think we can gather from these, this exchange. The Holy Spirit is totally bound up with Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, we obviously right. know that from, but this even underlines just how um, integral the gift of the Holy Spirit is in the um, in being baptized into Jesus. So this also helps. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. There's, uh, it was a common Jewish practice, or at least. Maybe common is not the right word. It was a Jewish practice. It's something that is, um, was especially evident in the Qumran communities. Um, you all know what the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the early 20th century, that there is these kind of apocalyptic Jews in the desert or almost like a monastic Jewish organization. Um, there's speculation that maybe John the Baptist had been a part of them. Um, they have a lot of their very strong language about Messiah and light and darkness and even, you know, the, t the ways that we need to do temple stuff. That's that their prayer can be can replace the sacrifice, all sorts of fascinating stuff. But what you have uh, with them, they would do ritual ablutions or um, Merkva baths or these kind of um, cleansing acts uh, which is probably why the Jews would have been familiar with John the Baptist doing this kind of water cleansing repentance. You know, we're going to renew our vows to the Lord by doing this uh, baptism of repentance. But John, Paul is very adamant, as we just got from Apollos, um, the story of bringing up Apollos to then this group, um, that they had to be baptized in Jesus and being baptized in Jesus. Um, I think the text is really specific in what the, the Holy spirit didn't descend upon them just because they're baptized, but directly after being baptized, apostolic hands are laid on them and the Holy spirit comes on them. And then they speak with tongues and prophesied. We've talked about prophecy and tongues a bit. Um, 
What do you think? What What is this event? Is this kind of a, it seems to me it's kind of another Pentecost. I think it's also why you've got 12 of them. It's still a continued, it's not, as much as we're looking at the Gentiles and the God-fearers, there's still um, space for and kind of, well, now that I'm saying this, do we know that these disciples, okay, let me even back up even further. What do you think it means in verse one that he, there he found some disciples? Disciples of what? Of Jesus? Presumably I'm so. I'm inclined to take it that way because that seems to follow on Paul's next question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Yes, that's a good point. Are these Jews? Doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us. Though it does, well, I was going to say, it sort of seems as though John's baptism was very much a Jewish baptism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the thing I'm why, I'm, why I'm asking this is because of the significance of 12 I mean, you all know the significance of 12 for the apostles, right? Sure. Because it's the renewed Israel, right? It's the eschatological, the kingdom had to be in 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel. So uh, to me, this seems to be basically Pentecost 2.0. And this, you know, I've been knee deep in some... uh, first and second kingdoms and such, or first and second kings. And this cyclical pattern, I mean, we've talked about patterns and how Acts is echoing gospels, but um, when you see the life of uh, Hophni and Phinehas with Samuel and then Saul and then David, and you see that they are basically put through the same things or they have the same similar challenges. And David, of course, is usually the one who uh, comes out ahead of Saul until after he recaptures Jerusalem and everything. And then he, well, he becomes a king like the other kings. Um, But you have these kind of like mm, cyclical events. I mean, Genesis is like this too. I'll give you one example. so Noah, right? You have the flood. You basically have recreation, the chaos. You have a microcosm of all creation, of all the element, like the seven day, six days of creation is floating along in a boat, this little mini world, little garden paradise in a way. Then it lands. And then Noah, what happens to Noah? What does he do? You mean when he gets drunk? Off the fruit of the vine. Then what happens? Yeah. Two sons cover his nakedness and one talks about it. Yes. So you have a repetition of the fall. Somebody takes of the fruit of a tree and now there's nakedness and there's shame and there's sin. And it becomes that you, you, this just happened like Babel. It's, they want to rebuild Eden. (laughs) So that's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, so this just reverberates constantly. So I would not be surprised uh, here with Acts if basically 
this is um, partly it's a message from Luke to a, probably a contingent uh, while he was writing of, I would just call them Johannines or something that are around where there's an incomplete nature. Like they know about Jesus, but they're in the, they're like, you have the, the uh, God fearers, uh, the complete Gentiles are pagans, right? God fears and then Jews, but you actually kind of have another category in there, which is those who are okay with the Messiah, but they actually haven't been fully initiated into the church yet. And so what needs to happen is that they need to be taught the fullness of the faith and they need to uh, have baptism and the descent of the Holy spirit. And I think this is just a repetition of the Pentecost is what it is. Again, underlining the completion of what the mission of Paul, I mean, what the kingdom is about. I mentioned something in an earlier meeting and I didn't do good to do too well with it. So I, I'm going to try it again. All right. And it has to do with ancient myth. And, 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 and the, and the repetitious patterns. Uh-huh. And, and, and that's not an argument that this is myth, right? That's 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 uh, that's pointing out the cultural context for what we're reading. And it's rather complex and subtle, and I don't. I'm just I'm just learning about it as I go. I've only been into it for a year or so, but the point. The point is the rhyme, is what, I, is, is, is what I'm trying to say. The point is the rhyme. The problem is people get hung up on the particular events and look for significance in the particular events. It's not to say the particular events are not significant, but they're just trees. If you want to understand the forest, you have to understand the rhyme. Now, the great temptation is, in all the ancient myths, and I suspect it may be true in the way at least I've read the Bible, the temptation is to, to sit down, uh, figure out all, where all these trees are, and, and, and to draw, uh, draw up a rational map and walk through it but I miss the rhymes and, and the message is in the rhymes. And if the message could be spoken that expressly, there wouldn't be any need for the rhyming. It's the patterns. The message is in the patterns. And that's about as far as I can go with it tonight. That's a, maybe a step further than I took it last time, but I hope I'm making a tiny bit of sense anyway. I think you're saying it a little bit more uh, explanatory, like second level ex explanation, what I was uh, talking, unless I'm wrong, but it seems to me you're talking at a secondary level, like explanatory level of what I was talking about, that Genesis, and you see this echoing throughout the Old Testament, you basically have these basic patterns. I mean, I did it tonight, talking about Pelagia the penitent, and how the um, we all fall into the deceitful allures of 
the attractiveness of the world and how we want to make ourselves attractive in order to appeal to the world in the same way that the snake uh, was deceitful with Eve and the, and she desired the beauty, but she misused the beauty of the fruit of the tree. So that there's this ba there's these basic patterns and ways of doing things that I think reverberate through scripture and they're constantly echoing each other. And yeah. when you read them, you're supposed to hear and see the rhyme that this goes back to Pentecost, that this uh, takes you back to, the 12, the, you know, fulfillment of the messianic kingdom, which is in, in verse eight about the kingdom of God. I think you're onto something. Yeah. And I think as far as living, I think it has to do with, it, with coming to understand that that's the real context of our own lives. We're living in these patterns. And how, and it's coming to understanding the patterns that we live in and learning how to move through the, the patterns. And, and, uh, and, 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 I'll, and I'll stop there because I'm really getting close to my, I'm at my edge now. So. I'm also close to my bedtime. <laughs> I'm close to a vice presidential, I'm close to a vice presidential debate. So. Oh, Kyrie. Um, I'm looking for potential potential rational discourse. Who knows? Anything could happen. Oh, Lord have mercy. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to get sidetracked onto the the presidential debate that happened. Um, I apologize. I apologize. No, no, no. I think you're right about the. Um, the pattern and we've been following Paul and it's the same. Um, he goes where he goes. He preaches until he basically can't physically <laughs> exist in that space anymore. Then he has to go somewhere else. He goes yeah. places encouraging, preaching the, the truth. And if he can stay a place and encourage and upbuild, then he does. If God calls him to go somewhere else, then he does. He's pliant to the will of God. Um, as we encountered uh, at the end there of uh, 18, you know, it's the will of God if he was going to come back. Um, and so let's also be prayerful about the will of God in our own lives and ways in which we can witness and preach and teach or show by our good works, the glory of God and the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus, even if people are speaking evil. So and that I think we should probably end for the evening and continue next week here in the middle of chapter 19. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much, Father. <laughs>